future. And then in Genesis 2, we have that um, place. In fact, it finishes Genesis 1, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it wasn't just good, it was very good. And there was evening and morning on the sixth day, and God rested. Anyway, in chapter 2, what we're introduced to is the creation of humanity. In fact, we've been introduced to that in Genesis 1, where it, God says in, within that trinity, within that relationship, within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, he said, let us, plural, make man or mankind in our image, male and female, he created them. I want to point something out here which is very important. It is only male and female that truly replicate the wholeness of God. There is not one that is worse than the other. There has been through the years this patriarchy, this male dominance so often in Christianity which um, elevates men over women. And yet when God first created humanity, he created them male and female because that replicated the true and full image of God. So in Genesis 2, we read a bit more of a instead of a global sense where it's just stated God said let us do this you drill in and you begin to see how God went about that and how it was good it was not good for man to be alone but there was no helper found no person found no companion found that would complete him and so God took a rib out of Adam's side and created the woman for him purposely created for him and in the midst of that passage we get introduced to the fact that there were two trees in the garden of Eden one was the knowledge of good and evil and the other tree was the tree of life and I believe right from the beginning of time, humanity had the option to choose the tree of life. The tree that would bring everlasting life. The tree that would make everything complete. And yet somehow, as we enter chapter 3, we find something goes awry. And I'm going to read from there. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God has said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. <clears throat> but the serpent said to the woman, you surely won't die. For God knows that when you eat 
of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. And I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate and then the passage goes on into uh, in fact I'll read this just this next bit for the Lord said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel the bible is very easy to misunderstand because it is made up of many different genres of writing there is prophecy there is poetry there is the law there are letters where uh, the apostles wrote to the church there's apocalyptic literature and wisdom literature and so there's historical literature in there where there are just historical accounts of what has happened And sometimes because those things seem to be broken up nicely into books, what happens is we seem to think that the Bible is made up of a, um, not a continuous single story, but lots of little different bits and pieces from which we base our Christian faith. And so often... What we think that the Bible tells us is a bunch of stories, a bunch of accounts, a bunch of wisdom, just so that we can live moral lives. And so what we do is we have a tendency to read the Bible wanting to be obedient, and I'm not saying that it isn't because we do want to follow Jesus, we do want to please our master. But the fact is, if we're not careful, we reduce the whole thing just to a very simplistic moral code. 
which we try and live under our own steam. But the Bible is more than a bunch of disconnected genres, a set of stories that contain a moral, although there are moral outcomes that are spoken of. The truth is the Bible is a single story and at its heart wants to reveal to us just three things through the whole of Scripture. I wonder how many of us see Jesus in the Old Testament. Or if you want to see Jesus, would you turn first to the New Testament? Because Jesus is peppered throughout the Old Testament again and again and again. Even right here, right in Genesis chapter 3, although it doesn't mention his name. So the three things that the, the, the single continuous story tells us is what is wrong with the human race? Number two, what is God going to do about it? Number three, how's it all going to turn out in the end? It's a good story. It's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. So Genesis 3 introduces us to the first part of the story really what is wrong with the human race why do we celebrate communion why should it be so special to us because what communion represents is absolutely essential for us it's absolutely essential for the world and it is essential for them outside who do not know and I don't mean that in a wrong sense that somehow oh there's us holy people in here and there's all those bad people outside I'm not meaning like that but the world needs to know what the whole focus of communion is about and what it did what the act of crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection actually achieved Philosophers, sociologists and academia in general ever since the Enlightenment has tried to do away with the concept of sin. They've tried to do away with the concept of sin. There was a point where the, the whole biblical doctrine of original sin, it seems to went out of vogue. And in doing that, there were other things offered to explain the problems that the world has do you have you if you've ever read Genesis I find it really quite interesting that the first act that happens following the fall is murder and the second story that we enter into following that is about Noah and how the increasing corruption on the earth that it broke God's heart And so instead of when they ate of the tree and they had the knowledge of good and evil, instead of it producing something wholesome, it actually did the opposite to what they were expecting. They became responsible for what happened on the earth. And that responsibility weighed heavy. But, but philosophers, sociologists and academia have tried to put it down to other things. So 
when bad things happen, when there is injustice, when there is racism, when there is other things, it's all about, well, it's, you know, it's educational change things. And yet, you know as well as I do, education in and of itself is not a bad thing, not against education in any shape or form. But education has not solved the issues. Philosophers have philosophized about, that was difficult. Philosophers have put forward their philosophies to give an answer for the evil and the things that happen in this world. And yet somewhere they will not come back to the fact that there is something inherent in humanity that takes us automatically down a path that is going to produce war, is going to produce selfishness, is going to produce all those things that they try and solve. I keep hearing we're going to eradicate poverty. Jesus has already told us the poor will always be with us. All our efforts, and it's not wrong to make effort to try and help people, but we're trying to eradicate something which cannot be eradicated because in humanity there is an issue. And that issue is a very unpopular word these days. It is sin of which the central letter is I, selfishness. Why did Eve end up taking the apple? Was it just because she was deceived? Partially, maybe. But it says something interesting about her. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She reached out and took. It wasn't just deception. She wanted something. She desired something. The man is not without excuse. And he's not like, you know, oh, poor old Adam. His wife got him in trouble. He was as culpable as she was. He knew what God had said and he chose to violate it. And so they both ate, but I want you to start to see something and I hope this will show you something of how sin manifests itself and why I believe in original sin that we have within us that sinful nature which seeks to be fulfilled. Because the first thing that starts to happen when God turns up on the scene, they start to try and pass the buck on to someone else. So God speaks to the man and the man basically says, it ain't my fault, you gave her to me and she gave me the fruit. Send her to hell. Although he doesn't, that's my ad lib, all right? And then when he talks to the woman, the woman has to find a way out now 
because she is in that place where she is finding it difficult. She has just been accused by her husband as being the problem. Blame is running riot. So she goes, it wasn't me. It was the serpent's fault. It was the serpent's fault. And the result of that was a breakdown in relationship. Relationship had already been demonstrated to have broken down because Adam and Eve had hid themselves from God when he came into the garden because they were ashamed, they were fearful. And therefore, sin breaks down relationships badly. That which is in us, which desires to be as good as the next person. And the only way sometimes we can be as good as the next person is to put that person down in order to lift myself up. But then there's somebody who will put me down in order to lift themselves up and so on. And we wonder sometimes why people find it difficult to trust one another, to actually come together. It's like that picture I told you, I think might have been last week or the week before, about the porcupines on a cold, sub-zero temperature night who come together to huddle together for warmth, but their spines intertwine and they prick each other only to be repelled. The trouble is, for us, We are sinners. We are saints, but we are sinners saved by grace. Where does the grace come? At the cross, the communion table. That's where grace comes. That's where forgiveness flows. That's where we are reminded of the absolute priceless value of what God has done for us. Priceless. And so sin enters in. Sin is not just moral failures. We look at the fruit so often to describe what sin is. And then rather than deal with the roots, what we have a tendency to do is we rip the fruit off the tree and stick false fruit on what it looks like is good. So we can look right. But if we're around long enough, those other bits of fruit poke their head through. And that is evident for all of us. In James 1 it says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's exactly what happened to Eve. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. What was the sin of Eve? Was it eating the apple? Or did something else happen before that? When the serpent challenged her about God, Tim Keller refers to it as the sneer. It's like Satan was sneering at her. God, did he really say? Really? 
You know why he said that, don't you? Because he knows once you eat of it, you're going to be like him. You will have the knowledge of good and evil. You'll be like him. He doesn't want you to have that. The sneer. And that's where sin began to enter in. Trust was broken between the creator and humanity. There was no longer a trust that Eve would say, yeah, but hold on a minute. Look at the garden we've got. Look at the way in which life has been going on. It can't can't get any better than this. But doubt was sown. The sneer took place and in essence, she decided not to trust God anymore. And from not trusting God, it led to blame, well, to shame, guilt, blame. Putting someone else down in order to lift themselves up. That's what Adam and Eve did. Let's put someone else down in order to make me look better than what I was. That's why as we go on through, there's this tree of life in the garden. And what happens in the tree of life is quite simple I mean, I'm amazed at the statement it actually makes. It said, we need to guard the way to the tree of life. We need to guard it, all right? Because if we don't, they'll eat from the tree of life and then they'll live forever like us. And so a cherubim with a flaming sword is put in the way. And then the earth goes from one place to another. Because now humanity, in walking away from God and God's way, begins to disintegrate. Oswald Chambers said this about sin. Sin is a fundamental relationship. It's not wrongdoing, it's wrong being. Deliberate and emphatic independence of God. The Christian religion bases everything on the positive, radical nature of sin. Other religions deal with sins, plural, but the Bible alone deals with sin. And it is because we have ignored this in our presentation of the gospel that the message of the gospel has lost its sting and and its blasting power. Sin is the issue. But there is good news even when everything seems lost. Because in verse 15, God is speaking and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The reality is that more academics than me think this is a very direct allusion to Jesus coming and crushing Satan's power. The picture that is in my mind and one that I heard actually recently was of a a very... Uh, venomous and poisonous snake and 
a, a family are together and this snake comes into the room and it moves towards the people. And for it doesn't really matter which person does it, but I'll choose the man just because Jesus was a man. The husband, as this snake approaches, he, he runs forward and attempts to stamp on the head of the snake to curtail its impending poison, a bite that would cause at the best distress and at worst death. And as he grabs around and he's stamping his foot again and again on the floor, eventually he hits the head of the snake, but not before the snake has bit him. And he gives his life for his family's salvation, to use a word. That is the cross. I believe that this refers to what then is future. Right at the beginning, when humanity went wrong, right at the beginning, God responded. And he knew that there was going to be an answer. The rest of the Old Testament points to Jesus coming. Points to his coming. The New Testament tells us of his life while he was here on earth. And his crucifixion, death, burial and resurrection. And then it tells us what will transpire between that moment and when he comes again to take those who love him to be with him. Communion is central. At the cross, there is a divine exchange. There was a song written many years ago. Oh, who was that woman who wrote it? Divine exchange, I can't remember her name. It was a beautiful song. And it just talked about the divine exchange. I thought about trying to do an illustration this morning, but I didn't have a red robe and I didn't have a rucksack and two people that I could stick it on. I wanted two people out here, one with a rucksack which says sin on the back of it and someone else who's got a robe which just said righteousness. And at the cross, when we surrender to Jesus, when we come before God and we hand over our sin to him, a divine exchange, we come and we bow the knee, we surrender to his authority and his kingship. When we do that, what happens? A divine exchange happens and he takes off the rucksack off your back And he takes the robe off himself and he puts the robe on you and he takes the sack, the rucksack, and puts it on. He exchanges what is ours for what is his. And that is unbelievable. When you really get down to it, that is unbelievable. A divine exchange A divine exchange. I never want us to lose the power of communion. I never want us to treat it just as a religious rite and act. Humanity sinned 
turned away from God and has made a mess of the world in which we live. God in his love and desire to see humanity prosper, and I don't mean monetarily, just to prosper in life, to have abundant life, God sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for us. At that cross, at that cross, the potential of a divine exchange was made. And when we come, and when we surrender, when we admit that we are sinners, that there's something in us that needs to be dealt with. Do you know what? Jesus says, let me take this off your back. You wear my robe of righteousness and I will carry the burden of your sin. And that's what he did on the cross. He carried the burden of sin. He died for the sins of the world. Why do I follow Jesus? I follow Jesus because no one else that I know of has ever died for me. I follow Jesus because I recognized in my life there was something that needed to change and yet I was powerless to change it. I knew even the good things I did were rubbish. That I was trying to appease an angry God because that's the God that I had portrayed to me. Yes, God is angry at sin and what sin does But it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. For he did not come into the world to condemn the world but to save the world. And I think we must always at communion remember that fact. You are priceless. I am priceless. Priceless. No greater price has been given for each of us than that. And so I just want to encourage you this morning that in God's sight, if you've made that divine exchange, when God the Father looks at you, he does not see that rucksack of sin that you carried around. He sees the robe of righteousness that God the Father gave to you. And when he comes and he says to Jesus, he says, well, where is it? He said, here it is. Here's the sin. I've dealt with it. It's no longer theirs. And God's love is demonstrated through that. Let's pray. Father, most of us, if we're truthful with ourselves, we know that we still fall short. We know that we still, of our own ability, don't measure up. But this morning, Lord, we want to thank you for the gift of Jesus. We want to thank you for this precious meal that you have left for us to celebrate together whether it's symbolic or not 
Lord, it is we want to remember you and what you've done, how you've dealt with sin, how bad sin is, and how because of that death, because of that resurrection and that burial, because of those things, we can come with our heads held high and we can celebrate with abandonment to you. Just not worrying about what the person next to me thinks, but just to give you glory and honour and praise for what you've done. Lord, I want to thank you for every individual in this room today. Lord, I pray that you will just remind us of our value, how much you paid for us, how much you have done for us. And God, I pray that we will know what it is to live with joy, no matter what the circumstances we experience, that we live with joy because of that fact and that fact alone. And that one day, we will be with you for eternity. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus this day. Amen. Amen.